Welcome to a Smart Talk Road Trip. Today, coming to you live from the Milton and Catherine Hershey Conservatory at Hershey Gardens. I'm Scott Lamar. Not surprisingly, this is the most beautiful location Smart Talk has ever broadcast from. And we'd like you to stop out and say hello as well. Over the next hour, we'll talk about the history of the Hershey Gardens Conservatory, horticulture, a new butterfly atrium, the importance of pollinators to our food supply, gardening, and with a wink toward Valentine's Day, love and relationships. So thank you very much for joining us today and uh, such a beautiful location. I know we're on radio, so take my word for it, but maybe what you'll have to do is visit uh, the Hershey Gardens. If you haven't been here for a while, there was so much new to see. And uh, even if you have been here before, there's always something new to discover. Joining us uh, during the first portion of our program is Pamela Whitenack, who is director of the Hershey Community Archives. Ms. Whitenack, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Also, Mariella Trosco, director of the Hershey Gardens. Mariella, thank you. Good morning. And also Dan Babbitt, associate director of the Hershey Gardens. Good morning. Thank you all three for joining us during this segment of the program. You know, I, I don't want to go overboard and raving about uh, our location here today. But uh, I don't know, in the middle of winter time, while it's pouring rain outside, even though we've had a mild winter, uh, we're still in February, early February. And being here reminds us of how beautiful it will be, not only here, but throughout the area once uh, the weather warms up and uh, everyone can get out there and do a little digging in, in, the, in the dirt. So, and we'll be talking about that a little bit later. Let's talk a little bit about history. Uh, Pamela, let me start with you. Um, you well, know, let me just jump right in here and say that um, we have the gardens because of Milton Hershey, and we have the conservatory also because of Milton Hershey. Um, this building's design was inspired by his very first conservatory that he built right after he finished his home, High Point. And um, he just had this great love of plants and gardens and flowers. And you see it when you look at these old photographs of Hershey in the park and the, the public areas around the factory and up at his home. In fact, his home um, was a public garden. People could walk um, and enjoy this magnificent gardens that surrounded his own home. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you mentioned those pictures. It's not very often when you take a look at old pictures and they look like they could be contemporary or modern, but a lot of those pictures do. Obviously, when you have people standing out there, the fashion's a little bit different, but you look at the photographs themselves and it looks very much like what you can find today in some places. Yes, because Milne Hershey had um, a water garden that was sort of at the, the foot of High Point, um, when you go into Hershey Park, one of the things that Hershey Park today is known for is the number of trees and garden beds that they have there. It was even more so when the, um, the park was first getting started. And the inspiration for Hershey Gardens actually grew out of this great love and all the horticulture that was part of Hershey in its earliest years. Okay, what kind of plants and what kind of flowers at that time? Um, well, just a wide range of perennials and um, annuals. Cannas were a, a huge flower that was very popular. In fact, um, today, if you go to the children's garden, there's a, an area that's sort of a, a reminiscent of um, the canna beds. We have this great photograph that was taken in 1915, and it's the Milton Hershey School boys, and they were very young in those years. And um, they're tucked in among the cannas, and so you have to look very carefully, and you can see little heads 
poking out of the flowers. And in the children's garden, you can recreate that experience. So if you come here with you know, your family, you can set your children among the cannas and recreate that photograph. Mm -hmm. uh, so whose idea, Milton or Catherine? Well, I think that both of them, um, though it was true that Catherine sort of ruled the roost in terms of the gardens. There, we have this great story about um, Milton Hershey coming upon a gardener, putting in a garden bed, and he's like, why are you doing that? And, you know, and she, he said, um, the gardener said, well, Mrs. Hershey told me to do it. And you stop doing that. You do it over there. And then Catherine comes by, and she says, why aren't you doing what I asked you to? And he explains, well, Milton Hershey, you know, Mr. Hershey said I should. And she says, you do what I tell you to do. I'll deal with Mr. Hershey. <laughs> Was, were those accurate imitations? <laughs> <laughs> She's using a little poetic license. <laughs> a little poetic license, yeah. Well, yeah, and we know that's uh, true in many, many households, yes. <laughs> even today. Uh, but, you know, I, there seemed to be a real love for tropical plants. Yes, and so to be able to care for those tropical plants, the conservatories um, were very important. And so the first there was the one at High Point. A few years later, one was built in the Hershey Park section. And then um, a couple years later, a third conservatory was built. And so when you walk into um, the, all the public gardens around Hershey during those years, during the summer months, you would see these you know, palms and um, other tropical plants. But then they would get moved into these conservatories. And they were open to the public. So much like the conservatory here at the Hershey Gardens today, people um, during Milton Hershey's lifetime, during the winter months, could go and sort of take a break from the cold weather um, of winter and enjoy the tropical surroundings that we have here in the Butterfly Atrium. That was really one of the main motivations, right, is that uh, people in the area could come during the winter months. Yes, yes, then and now, it was sort of a, you know, make, trying to make Hershey, even at that point, a year-round destination. What did the conservatory look like at that point? Um, well, it was very much a sort of a classic, um, you know, glass greenhouse with a beautiful um, arched ceiling and, um, and peaks. And if you, you know, are outside here, the Milton and Catherine Hershey Conservatory here at the gardens, um, you get a sense of that um, arched um, entranceway that was part of the conservatory, Milton Hershey's conservatory. Well, let's move to uh, 2017 now. And uh, uh, Mariella Trosco, who is director of Hershey Gardens, uh, you know, I, again, I'm looking at those pictures, and even though you know, what you have here is very contemporary looking, very modern looking, you still can see some characteristics of, of, of what Pamela just described. Right, absolutely. So when we were thinking of um, building the conservatory, the inspiration was the conservatories from the time of Mr. and Mrs. Hershey. And we looked back to them, and the architect did as well. Um, so the, uh, the incentive and the impetus was educational programming, which is the, at the core of our mission. But the inspiration was definitely um, the conservatories. Mm. OK, so what are some of the features that are the same? And which ones, what have we modernized today that, that are different? Well, it's less, it's less of a greenhouse. The, the conservatories in Mr. Hershey's time were um, functional greenhouses. Mm -hmm. But now it's a space for um, not only horticulture, but um, educational programming. So you see the, the beautiful space here. We can do horticulture education. We can do school groups. We can do functions. We can do private events. 
Mm -hmm. When you say educational for children, for adults, because I mean this seems to be something that covers all age groups. Well, um, primarily <coughs> the, uh, the start was for school groups, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, we had the butter outside butterfly house and it was a seasonal house. So we could only serve school children during the times when the seasonal house was open, um, a few weeks in May and then some in September. So we really wanted to serve school children year round. But it's a wonderful space to do public education. We just had a very successful orchid show where we um, greeted almost 3,000 guests. And there was a lot of public education here. Not only were the orchids beautiful, but the staff here, the Orchid Society members, imparted uh, lots of education for our staff, for the visitors. Um, so it serves all sorts of educational purposes. Now, the conservatory isn't always open for winter, right? We're open 363 days a oh, year Oh, really? Now. Okay. Yes. All right. Yes. Okay. Well, um, see, so I have some... Uh, Something I saw that was only open, th this is the only third time it's open during the winter. Well, there have been a few years in the past from when the gardens originally opened where the gardens were open, but generally we, and in fact just last year, we were closed January, February, and March. Okay. But now that we opened July 1st, we're really open now. Other than Christmas Day and Thanksgiving Day, we're open every other day, 9 to 5 and 9 to 6 in the summer. Okay. So visitors, what do you want them to take away? Well, the conservatory adds another layer of the experience. So the gardens has always been a beautiful place um, for activity, for a, a, a serene place to come and um, um, get away from some of the other exciting things that are going on around town. But this adds a, a, a completely new and different layer. So the butterfly atrium is its own experience. It's always summer in there, even in the winter. And, yeah, um, I, can, I can attest to that. I'm yes, still you, yeah, yeah, you went through yeah. it already. Yeah. You saw that it's yeah. always With 80 a degrees in there. On, yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, um, it's its own environment, so there's a whole sort of learning opportunity in there. And then you come over here and we have the education kiosks. We have a lot of activities going on that we bring out. Education. Dan has some education carts going on in the day. So it adds a whole nother layer to the experience and gives us the opportunity to serve guests year-round. I think we should talk about the bugs as well. Right. We yes. also want people yeah. to be, um, you know, make that connection with nature. And so, and being able to do that in the middle of the winter in central Pennsylvania is wonderful. They can come here, have, you know, step into a tropical environment and get surrounded by 600 butterflies. And then, which, you know, spurs those questions and see the tropical plants. So that harkens back to Milton Hershey's day when having the, you know, the tropical plants on display that people can see in the winter. And we're doing something very similar, reminiscent of that, where people can see gorgeous plants and gorgeous butterflies and, and start asking, you know, start looking a little more deeply and ask, and ask good questions. Well, I just want to, Dan, before we talk about yeah. uh, the butterfly atrium, something, Marielle, that you said, uh, use the word uh, serene. That serenity is something that uh, we can use today. There's so much going on in the world. And you know, when you walk through the Hershey Gardens, you have these little out of the way places, little benches yes. that uh, yeah. you can sit down and just contemplate nature and all the beauty of it. Right, so. we, I mean, we, obviously we don't want guests to forget our 23 acres because in addition to the conservatory and the wonderful experience in here, um, the gardens are 23 acres of 11 different theme gardens. So you can have, you can bring your children to the children's garden and have all sorts of activity. But if you want a quiet place, you can go out to the redwoods of the Japanese garden and just yes. have, and you're right, in this day, yeah. a little serenity goes a Absolutely. long way. Absolutely. I may be here later today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Dan Babbitt is the Associate Director of uh, Hershey Gardens, and uh, Dan, we've mentioned the Butterfly Atrium a few times. Uh, this is new, this is new, and uh, well, relatively new, right. if you look a few months. Uh, but as, as Mariel mentioned, I got to walk through it this morning, it's 80 degrees in there, 70% uh, humidity, that's what the, the butterflies like, I understand. It is. So we're trying to make it like a, a equatorial tropical experience every day of the year. So they get 12 hours of light and 12 hours of dark and they have really bright lights during the day and they need it to be hot and humid, just like you're walking into a rainforest well, in South America. The butterflies and the plant life are just absolutely gorgeous. All right. So where did the idea for this come from? Sure. I mean, we the gardens had a, a native seasonal butterfly exhibit um, since the late 90s um, in the children's garden. And it was one of the most popular things in the summer um, for many of our guests coming and seeing the butterflies, all native butterflies. Um, and we wanted to be able to expand on that and be able to offer that in the classes surrounding that to um, school groups and visitors all year round. Um, and in doing that, bringing a butterfly exhibit indoors, we also got the chance to go past just having a native exhibit and get butterflies from all over the world. Um, so and have to, with that, you have to follow lots of strict procedures and go through USDA um, regulations. But we were able to do that in the building and then in our, um, in our procedures for the space so we could have, we've already shown about 140 different species of butterfly in the exhibit since we opened it in July. And we have about 40, 50 species flying at any time of all those 600 in there. Yeah, the, uh, I, right away, I was told about the, the hitchhikers. Right, yeah. <laughs> There's, there are mirrors just as you leave the atrium uh, to make sure that uh, you don't have a hitchhiker. And I did. I had an owl butterfly. He was walking out with, well, actually, you had a blue morpho on you. Oh, I did. I thought you, were, it was you were leaving with. And it we was caught. on my rear end, so I couldn't yeah. tell. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, the, the, the owl butterfly seemed to be, it's, first of all, I have to admit, I'm not familiar with that species. Sure. But it's large and it's beautiful, and they're everywhere. Yeah, and that's when I actually had a, a pretty magical experience when when I was in college. I studied in Ecuador for about uh, three, four months, and I was walking in the rainforest, and I had an owl butterfly land on me, you know, in the wild in the rainforest, and just hung out with me for a long time. Um, and that was I, I was studying insects, but I never studied that. I didn't I hadn't studied butterflies that closely at that point in my career. Um, but I had that nice owl experience, and it's kind of fun to be able to bring that here and have people not have to travel to Ecuador and then be able to have a similar experience. Well, actually, it's even heightened because there's so many butterflies in there, um, but have that kind of you know, that, that connection with wildlife. Uh, it, it is incredible. You know, th there is something that, and we're going to be talking about this in our next uh, segment of the program, too, about uh, pollination, uh, but the relationship between insects, butterflies, the human food supply, there has been so much attention in recent years on uh, the honeybee population yeah. uh, when we're talking about uh, pollinators. But there are other uh, insects and other species that we should be talking about. Talk about that and, and how significant that is. There are. Um, and, and insect pollination for our food supply is vital. Um, we get about a third of our diet from insect pollinated um, plants, things like all your blueberry, all your nuts and berries and a lot of the fruits are coming from insect pollinated plants. And we had people think about the honeybee and the plated honeybee and there's a lot of issues that the honeybee is facing. But there are just four, I mean, there are 4,000 other kind of bees just in the United States alone. 
Um, many of those are pollinators, um, plus 750 species of butterfly, and then tons of flies and beetles that are also pollinators. So there's a huge, diverse um, population of pollinators, and that's something that we have to be um, careful to, to protect. So overuse of land and overuse of chemicals or not, you know, being, I think people are coming, becoming a lot more aware of that and like what they plant in their garden these days, you know, and so you can um, attract not just, you know, not just pretty flowers, but attract the um, positive insects that will help your, uh, help your garden grow. Who is someone, someone who is very involved in this on a daily basis. What's your level of concern about the future when we're talking <laughs> about, about pollination? Um, I'm, I'm concerned about, about, um, about pollinators, but I'm also, um, I have a lot of uh, hope because so, I've just in the recent years, the amount of education that has happened um, from presidential memoranda to, um, to people starting gardens, to people talking about it a lot more. And people are just uh, much more aware of the plight of pollinators and what it, and what it means to them. Um, so I think there's a lot of work and a lot you know, people are, are, um, are doing. So it's, it's hopeful. Are we seeing any impact on our food supply yet? Um, I'm not qualified enough to answer that one, but it's, 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 it's coming. I mean, that's one thing you do have that is with the, with the bees and trying to um, pollinate things like al the almond crop. And so if we don't have enough bees to do that, we're not, you know, almond prices are going to go up and we're not going to be able to have our almonds. Um, so it's, there are, there is starting to be impact, but we're, it's, it's, it will get worse unless we do something about it. It's definitely a topic that guests are talking about. So they ask really? for That's pollinator good. tours. School groups talk about pollinators. You know, um, they ask for our, you know classes on that. They, you know, just uh, anecdotally ask our horticulture staff about what kind of things they should be growing. Um, so we can tell just sort of. Um, by the buzz, so to speak. Yeah. That, uh, uh, yeah. How that, often do you use that? <laughs> I, I was waiting all morning for I, that. That's but, good. Uh, but we, there's a lot of conversation about it, just uh, around the gardens. Well, I'm glad to hear the kids are talking about it. I mean, that, that's, that's a hopeful sign. I mean, it's obvious something, obviously something that they've heard about in their science classes in, and in school and uh, maybe realize the importance of it. Right. I mean, that's something we're trying to do here now um, is that talk a lot about that, or something I'm working on a lot is that plant-insect interaction. We're mm -hmm. gardens, but you need that, you know, and for that insects and plants, it's that partnership, um, that coevolution. And so we're, I have some other insects that we have on display in the butterfly house, and we do a bug cart where people can um, get to hold a bug on the weekends, on Saturdays and Sundays, and kids can get an official bugologist um, card. Um, but just making people more aware of that connection between plants and insects. Well, I, I have to say, just as we're wrapping up this segment, it, a couple of the really fascinating parts of uh, the butterfly atrium, just make my way back there, is that you get to see uh, butterflies as they are emerging. And, you know, you, most of us have seen that like on a uh, wildlife program, Nova on PBS or something like that, but don't get to see it in person. So that is, that is really cool. And uh, I also learned, I mean, I, I think I knew this before, but that a butterfly only lasts, or excuse me, only lives, sorry about that, sounds like a product, only um, lives for two weeks. So you better hurry now to get out and see. I mean, it's not like they're gonna, not going to replenish, but if you want to see today's butterflies, get here within the next two weeks. Dan Babbitt is 
the Associate Director of Hershey Gardens. Pamela Whitenack is Director of Hershey Community Archives. And Mariella Trosco is Director of Hershey Gardens. Thank you very much for being oh. with us today. Well, thank you for having us. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. It's a Smart Talk road trip today, and we're coming to you from the Hershey Gardens Conservatory, talking about a lot of things here today, horticulture, a new butterfly atrium, the importance of pollinators. And I want to remind our audience, we have a live audience here today, as we always do with our Smart Talk road trips, and we have a nice, uh, a good-looking crowd. <laughs> what are you laughing at? I was being serious about that. Uh, if you have a question or a comment, I know this sounds like me asking for phone calls. We do have a microphone set up here. If you have a question for one of our guests, and this is especially a good uh, segment to, to ask questions. We're going to be talking about gardening and gardening trends and the future and what to look forward to once the weather warms up. Our guest during this portion of the program is George Weigel. You probably recognize uh, George's name. He's a gardening expert and columnist with Central Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Magazine and also Penn Live and Erica Jo Schaefer, nursery manager at Highland Gardens in Camp Hill and a regular guest on our program. Welcome to the program. Good Thank morning. You. Good morning. You guys talked over one another. I got, I got that, though. But, <laughs> hey, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, this is right up your alley, right? Sure. Oh, I mean, this is, uh, this is just great. So gardening trends. George, when I mentioned to you before the show that uh, that's one of the topics we were going to be discussing, you said there is so much to talk about. Well, let's start. Gardening trends. Where, where do we start? Well, you hit on one already, the pollinators. Right. I'm getting that left and right. You know, really? People, oh, yeah. When I go out and help people with gardens, that's one of the first things they're interested in, pollinators. About, I'd say maybe about 10 years ago, I'd get questions about, is this plant going to attract bees? And they were asking because they didn't want plants that were going to bring bees into the garden. Nowadays, the first question I get, is this plant going to attract bees? And it's, <laughs> yeah, well, okay, that's the one I want then. The emphasis is on a oh, different word. Totally flipped. Not yeah. everybody. Not uh -huh. everybody, but oh, yeah, a lot of but, people. But people are getting it. Oh, yeah. They're getting the message. The, the people who care are getting the message. But you still have some who, uh, yeah, they, they're afraid of bees or they're, they, they really don't understand the situation yet. Yeah. Uh, Erica, did you see, do you see that uh, with your work that uh, people are asking for? I mean, they may not ask specifically for pollinating plants, but maybe they do. They do. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, tell me, what are some of those conversations? Uh, there's a lot of people who will want the natives because they are more, um, the, the social media is driving the awareness of the pollinator plants. So they want more natives so that our native bees and our native butterflies will be uh, visiting their gardens. Mm -hmm. You know, and I mentioned during our last segment that there has been so much emphasis on bees that uh, some of the other pollinators are getting neglected. Maybe what we can do today is educate uh, many people listening that uh, it's more than just honeybees. Yeah, well, people like uh, butterflies more than bees for sure. Just about everybody likes butterflies and birds. But the nice part is just about most of the plants, almost all of them, that attract bees also are attractive to butterflies and birds. And, it doesn't have to be that difficult. You know, I, I try to tell people, rather than worry about why I need this particular species or cultivar to attract that particular bird, just plant a buffet. Just plant a lot of stuff. And the, the birds and the bees, they'll sort it out. They'll pick out what they right, It's like, get on another topic on us now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's the next <laughs> That's the next topic, yeah. <laughs> but, we, uh, Erica, you said that uh, a lot of people are looking for, for native plants. 
when someone comes in to you and says that, uh, hey, I'm looking for some plants that uh, pollinators would appreciate, mm -hmm. maybe they wouldn't put it in those words, uh, but something that it would attract the pollinators, what do you recommend in central Pennsylvania? Oh my goodness, we have so much stuff. Uh, everybody's into the butterfly weed right now, Asclepias, which attracts the monarch butterflies. Uh, asters are a big deal, uh, Baptisias. Um, flocks, bee balm. There's, there's, there's so much. We have at, um, we have a whole table that's devoted to native plants. Oh, that's good. So you can, yeah, go right to that. So George, you said it's easy. I get the sense that uh, many people would like to do this, mm -hmm. but somehow find it intimidating because they think this is what it's got to be. And I'm, mm -hmm. for those on listening on the air, I'm raising my hand and showing everything here in the conservatory, but uh, that it's difficult and that you have to have a lot of space mm -hmm. and you have to devote a lot of time to it. When you say it's easy, what do mm -hmm. you mean? Well, it's as easy as you want to make it or as hard as you want to make mm -hmm. it. If you want to have a perfectly trim garden and worry about cultivars and you know, everything in its right place, you can do that. That's, that's what we've been doing for the last maybe three, four decades, the trimming and the, the neatness and the sanitizing the garden, you know, get every last leaf out of there. Leaf is litter, it's dirty. If you go the other route, if you just let nature be nature, it's a whole lot easier. You know, I like to, you know, rather than look like uh, uh, maybe I'm the the lord of my manor. You know, I'm controlling the garden. Just be a, you know, a happy participant. You know, you facilitate things. Just plant some things. Let them do their thing. It, it's okay for two plants to touch. You know, if you take that attitude, you know, it, it, if you're not the dictator of your yard, it's going to be a whole lot easier. Yeah, it's that's, attitude. That's the line I'll take out of this show today. It's all right for two plants to touch. Yeah. Well, George, I have a little story to tell about Erica here. Um, <laughs> We have a dandelion thing going on. Uh, it's not a thing. Well, <laughs> it is for me. It is for me because I, I'm, a, I'm a dandelion hater. I admit it's it. So I'm awful. a hater. Like, why? I know. I, if we've had this conversation before. We're going to continue until you cross <laughs> to the other side. I am not going to cross <laughs> to the other side. You're going to. No, I am not. Well, there goes the civil conversation. <laughs> That's right. That's about the most uncivil conversation we've had. But. I, I will respect I will respect your belief about dandelions. <laughs> Tell me why I should not want to kill my dandelions, cut them up. Oh, other than that dandelion salad that you uh, prepared. That you so, loved. Yeah, it's, it's Scott, good. It you was loved. Good. I did. Yeah, okay, she went, the so. day she brought it in, the day she brought it into the station, she was on the air. She picked it out of her front yard before she came in. That's how fresh it was. Of course, I didn't know the difference because I tasted the dandelions, but all right, so go ahead. And you loved it. Yeah, it was good. And it was it embellished with violet flowers. Yeah, Let's not that's right. That. It wasn't just little yellow I'm dandelions. An <laughs> you so. have that written all over you, embellisher. <laughs> um, so tell me about that. It, just something as simple as a dandelion. Something Why? as simple as a dandelion. Like George said, if, you're, you know, if you want to lose control a little bit of your garden and let it start to be what it is, even in the dandelions, you see a dandelion growing on a highway in the crack right before where the grate is, and guess what? You're going to find bees on that single dandelion that's got a bloom on it. Okay. So it's, dandelions are super powerful for pollinator attractors, and we need to stop killing them. Scott. <laughs> oh, we get applause for the dandelions here. <laughs> Go dandelions. I, I feel outnumbered here. But, um, see, okay, now, the, the reality is that most of us 
look at dandelions, and there are other plants as well that we view as weeds. May not be the best looking, but do they serve a purpose? Okay, I know you're gonna say dandelions do, but something that we see as weeds, do they serve a purpose? Well, yeah, so they wouldn't be here. Oh. Um, plantain uh, is another thing viewed as a weed that if you uh, get an insect bite or a bee bite, you can um, rub the leaf on that and the insect bite will stop itching. So that's why Violet flowers earth. have more vitamin C in them than strawberries. Say. So there's, there's all sorts of things. So when we're busy um, uh, decorating our yards with plants, um, creating gardens, then there are already things that are in the garden that we're trying to exclude, dandelions, plantains, wild violets, spending a lot of money trying to kill things that are, are pollinators in our area for a reason. That's mm -hmm. already so, happening. So George, are you killing any weeds? Some, yeah. Okay. I, I don't sure. use chemicals, I pull them. Okay. Yeah. My strategy is put plants you like better in the space first. You beat the mm -hmm. weeds to the punch. Yeah. Okay. Now, some things yeah. will get out of control, like I'm not a poison ivy fan, that's, that's a native, you know, True. but I'm, I'm not going to plant poison ivy. So some things you need to keep under control, but I would do it by yanking it out, you know, instead mm -hmm. of, why would you go spray something, it's still there, it's just dead. Just yank it out and it's gone. And then put something else that you like better there, it takes over, and you're in good shape. Okay. You're facilitating, mm -hmm. so you're, you're kind of the conductor of a yard symphony. Wow. This is really poetic. Today. It is. <laughs> Dennis, uh, one of our uh, uh, Smart Talk guests uh, on, uh, on the program uh, just a few months ago when we had a 92-year-old World War II veteran is here today. And I see you have a question. I do. Uh, I had a unique experience last summer. I have a huge moonflower bed. And for the first time last summer, hundreds of honeybees every night. Uh, would that mean that somebody had a colony nearby? Why, why all of a sudden, for, I've had the bed for a decade, never had bees at the moonflowers, and as I said last summer, hundreds of them. Well, it, all wildlife just finds stuff. You know, you plant it. I'm, I'm always amazed how you'll have a, a suburban development where it's just lawns and maple trees, and someone puts a little pond in, and somehow a bird finds that little drip of a pond in a big suburban development. But I think if you plant stuff, they find it sooner or later. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, they might not find it the first year, but uh, some species migrate. They'll, they'll uh, uh, go up in population, down in population, move around. So you might not see uh, something overnight, but if you keep planting enough stuff, I think little by little, you're gonna see more and more wildlife just show up. They, they just have a, a way of finding things. Dennis, so did you find the honeybees bothersome or no? Okay. Loved them. Loved them. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not just native plants, too, that, that attract uh, butterflies, bees. The, mm -hmm. Some of the uh, wildlife, there are uh, broader uh, diets to them. They'll, uh, they'll pick what they like. And it's not just things that are native to here. They'll, they'll eat some things that were native to Asia, uh, Europe. You know, the, so it's... That's why I think if you, if you hamstring yourself and only plant these few things, you're better off just planting a lot. Just stay away from invasive stuff. All right, well that was my next question, is how do you determine the difference between what's invasive and something that may not be native, but that can thrive yeah, here there's in, a, in central Pennsylvania? There's a whole debate over that. Is it aggressive? Like There's a saying that it can't be invasive if it's a native. Well. To me, poison ivy is a native, but I would call that invasive. Someone else would say, well, it's just aggressive. Well, that's, I'd just say, you know, if, if it's something that's more uh, harmful than helpful, or if it's out of control, you have to at least knock it back or 
yank it out and put something better in. But it's poison hard. sumac you see everywhere. Uh, yeah, that's, not, so, that's poison sumac's so, really rare. It's just sumac you see. Oh, really? And and you can make tea out of the berries. <laughs> <laughs> the native, the native yeah, sumac. sumac. Yeah. I think she's going to make something to eat out of this chair I'm sitting on before the end of the show. Yeah. Think about that. Well, and they're beautiful. Like, think about sumacs. They're growing in areas that nothing else wants to grow. They've got excellent autumn color. They're drought tolerant. They do have excellent autumn color. They're erosion color. control. They're okay. natives. They've got right. great flowers. How do I know when one is poison and one is not? They have white berries. The poisonous the ones have, have white, white berries. berries. Okay. Didn't know that. See, look See? at you just blanketing a whole thing. <laughs> I have. We have another uh, question for the audience. Hi. I volunteer for the garden at Southeast Elementary School in Lebanon, and we have bindweed coming up like crazy that's just covering the beds that we've planted, and it came in over one summer, and we're not sure how it came in, and we don't want to use pesticides, so we're pulling it, but it seems to come back even worse as we pull it. What would you suggest? No, that's that. a hard one. It, it's possible it came in with your mulch. That's what we Yeah, do. it probably came in that way. That's going to be a tough one without using some sort of an herbicide to get rid of it. There's a um, preen, which is uh, still okay. chemical, and corn gluten, which is non-chemical, are um, to put on to stop seeds from germinating. So that may help. Okay. You know, you don't want them to go into flower anymore because then it's just going to populate more and more. And you may have to resort to that to get reset and then be careful where you buy your mulch yes and okay. be careful where you buy your soil because if it's cheaper right. then you know it's also it's not being um watched as much we might get thistles and and mm -hmm. other things that are horrible how do you ask that question when buying mulch what do you ask i think it's the i think it's the responsibility of who you're buying it from mm -hmm. like what you know like what you think their reputation is this was given to us. Unfortunately, we didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's you know that kind of stuff happens. So sure. now, and that's it's nice that somebody was so generous, and they probably mm -hmm. didn't know either. Right. So now you're just gonna have to, you know, like spot. You don't have to cover the whole thing with with chemicals. Okay. It's just stay on it, stay on it, stay on okay. it, stay on it to get to Very gain good. control of it again. Thank you. Get Thank those you. kids out there working. <laughs> they are. Form. She good said. Exercise. That's right. All right. So. We are in early February, and uh, I'll get to you in just a, just a second. Um, we are in early February, and about this time, especially when we haven't had any snow yet, and uh, it's been fairly mild, probably there are some people with cabin fever mm -hmm. who are thinking, you know, maybe I can get a little early start uh, since we haven't had any snow and it doesn't look like we're going to, although that could go up to April 1st. but. Let's talk about this time of year in a normal year. What should those who are planting their gardens, what should they be thinking about? Is there anything they can get ahead of? Yeah, there's some jobs when, the, uh, when there's no snow cover. Things like edging the beds. You could cut back your perennials if you haven't done that yet. You can do some pruning of uh, uh, like deciduous trees, uh, things that would be blooming uh, later in the season. You could cut those back. Late blooming shrubs would be something you could do. Uh, so there's, there's a bunch of things you could be doing, but I wouldn't be planting yet if, if somebody's ready to go out and start digging and planting, especially when it rains. You don't want to dig in wet soil. And we're not done either. I don't trust the weather. The, the, the weather is so erratic. 
that we might, I mean, we're not even halfway, well, about halfway through yeah, winter, but yeah, we, yeah. we could still have a nasty February and a nasty March. Some of our biggest blizzards have been in March. Mm -hmm. Last year, we got through the whole winter and thought, um, and we thought we were home free. We got to April, and all of a sudden, buds were opening, and it, the temperature just nosedived down into the 20s and just killed buds off. And that's mm -hmm. in, like, the third week of April, I think. So usually I figure uh, we're done with snow about the 4th of July. That's usually when <laughs> I'm, I'm done worrying about that point. You said the don't dig in uh, wet soil. Wet soil, yeah, it destroys the, uh, the soil. It compacts. You squish the air out of it. There are a lot of people who do that because it's easier to dig. In wet soil? Yeah. That, no, I mean, it, your shovel goes in there a little moist. bit easier. Yeah, it's Mistake. squishy. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, there's a difference between moist and wet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If it's sticking to your shovel, you shouldn't be doing it. Okay. All right. We had a, another question from... So this is taking us back to the uh, questions about mulch. Um, I live in a neighborhood that's wooded, and we, I use my leaves as, um, as my mulch. And um, my neighbor, who's taking a master gardener program, claimed that by using leaves, um, it, it has a higher, um, or not just the organic, but it, 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 the value of nu nutrition that my plants absorb is much higher than if I were in a mulching with bark um, fertilizing process. So it's an economical choice as well as a very convenient place to put my leaves. Is that accurate? I have only used leaves for mulch for five or six years. So yes, I think that, I'm not sure that I agree that it increases your nutrients so much as it increases the, the texture of your soil, making it healthier, and thereby the nutrients can um, maybe permeate a little bit better. There's better, it's called cation exchange capacity, which is, means that the roots are taking up the nutrients better because your soil texture is better. It's recycling, that's awesome. It's convenient. Um, uh, however, don't use uh, walnut leaves because they put a chemical into the soil uh, that's kind of poisonous. Not poisonous, like you won't get it on you. And it's for competition with other plants, so you don't want to do that. But I, I do um, probably three inches of oak leaves over my whole garden, and that's, that's what I'm using. That's every year. It does break down faster than mulch does, and it's like it's free. Oh, Joe Ulrich, my uh, engineer, says, hey, we're on, we're on. This is what happens. I get distracted uh, when we're doing these smart talk road trips and uh, talking to so many great people uh, when we're out on the road. It's a great opportunity to do that. Today we are broadcasting live from the Hershey Conservatory Gardens, and uh, Hershey Gardens Conservatory, I should say, and uh, having a great time. Great audience, and uh, we have great questions as well. Uh, we've been talking a lot about horticulture, about flowers, about plants, about pollinating, about food supply. So a lot of different topics today. We're going to kind of switch gears on you now. Uh, I'm sure you are aware that uh, next week, February 14th, is Valentine's Day. And okay, now follow me on this one. Uh, our original thought is we're going to say, okay, let's talk about why there are so many people in love or just friends or uh, presenting flowers or giving flowers to uh, their loved one. And here on WITF, starting on Friday, we start our annual Roses campaign, which is always uh, one of the most popular times of year that starts on Friday. So uh, if you're looking for that uh, Valentine's gift of uh, roses, you can do that on WITF uh, starting on Friday. But then the more we got to thinking about it, it was like, okay, Valentine's Day is more than just flowers or chocolates. It's about love, it's about relationships. So we went looking for an expert on such, 
And uh, I, I did a little bit of uh, detective work, and uh, our next guest was highly recommended to me. Uh, she is Dr. Diane Brockman, a senior lecturer of psychology at Messiah College. Dr. Brockman, thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, I'm looking forward to this. Now, Dr. Brockman sent me um, a, a list of some of the things that uh, she talks about in class, writes about, and I have to tell you that it is not the most romantic thing in the world. There is a lot of evolution, a lot of biology in there. But let's start with that. Okay. Valentine's Day, do we need a holiday for people to be attracted to one another? I don't think we need a holiday for it, but I think it's nice to have something, a holiday to celebrate love, okay. to celebrate. All right, here's, here's the question that uh, man has been asking since they were able to communicate. What is love? What is ah, wow. I mean, the look on her face. Um, I think there's a lot involved with it. And so um, one of the things I study is what are the characteristics that men and women are looking for in a long-term relationship? And which usually means love. Which usually means love, exactly. Right. And one of the things they both look for is love. So mutual commitment, um, that there is some type of attraction physical attraction, but also that they're attracted to people who are kind and understanding as well. But there are differences between men and women, what they're attracted to. Well, we're going to get into that, but uh, that is pretty consistent, though, that, I mean, is it physical attraction to begin with? My guess is more so for men than women. Correct. Right. Correct? So, so one of the big differences in terms of looking for a long-term mate is that, um, men, at least initially, value physical attraction more than women. We're dogs. No, no, that's not true. So, okay, not true maybe I should, re since we're talking about evolution, I don't mean real dogs. Go ahead. No, so, um, so I study uh, relationships from a perspective of, called evolutionary psychology. So mm -hmm. we look at how our ancestors had to deal with things and how they passed on certain psychological mechanisms. So we talk about passing on um, physical characteristics, but we also believe that we pass on psychological characteristics as well. And so um, one of the things that, one of the goals then for men is to pass on their genes to the next generation. And so to, to look at a woman and to figure out is she healthy enough to get pregnant and to carry this pregnancy, um, one of the biggest characteristics is physical attractiveness. So, so characteristics that are physically attractive also correlate with health and fertility as well. And obviously that's not something that we consciously are asking ourselves. Correct, right. correct, exactly. So, so in class I talk about one of the things that men are attracted to is um, a woman with an hourglass figure, smaller waist and, and then larger hips. And I said to them, we don't look at women and say, wow, that's a great waist to hip ratio. I think I'm attracted to her. <laughs> it's just something that works more on the subconscious mind. That's a great pickup line. <laughs> you, know, you, know. you have a great waist to hip ratio. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, so, so again, it works more at a, a subconscious level. It's, um, again, one of those psychological mechanisms that's just been passed down generation after generation. And women who do have a good, what we call waist to hip ratio, smaller waist, larger hips, um, they tend to, that cor tends to correlate with fertility and with health as well. Mm -hmm. But there are other physical characteristics that men are looking for too, right? Correct, correct. So um, good muscle tone, um, healthy hair. So interestingly enough, our hair is the last place that nutrition goes. So somebody who is well nourished, you'll be able to see that in their hair. So that's one of the reasons that men hmm. tend to like healthy hair. All right, so what about women? Okay, so for women, it's a little bit different. Um, 
So again, looking back to our ancestors thousands and thousands of years ago, if a woman could find somebody who could provide her with shelter, food, protection, she was more likely to survive and her children were more likely to survive. And so now women still tend to be attracted to men with resources and men who are hardworking and industrious as well. Okay, when you say resources, today are you talking about money? <laughs> Money and um, a decent job, and so it doesn't. The man doesn't have to be Bill Gates, but if he's a hard worker, if he um, brings in a decent wage, that can. That's another characteristic that tends to be attractive to women. But how does a woman meeting a man for the first time know that? Know that a man has resources or. Uh, you know, is a good provider, works hard, those kind of things. Right, that's a great question. So um, she can look at, first of all, first of all, she can ask him what he does for an occupation, and sometimes that's an indicator of um, maybe what his resources might be. She can look at maybe the cars, type of cars that he drives, or car, um, or the home that he that he has, and um, just some of the things maybe that he even has in his home or who else he might be taking care of if he's taking care of other members of his family as well. Now that sounds like you know, someone looking for a long-term relationship. Correct. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm just having trouble wrapping my head around the first time meeting that a woman would look at a man and say, ah, I, I like this guy, I'm attracted to this guy because he has resources. Right, right. And again, it's not necessarily a conscious thing for women either. You know, if, if, if she meets somebody and he says, oh, I'm a doctor and I'm going to go to my second house, you know, at the beach this weekend, it, that may be something that sounds very attractive to her. She may realize, oh, he does have some resources. He may be able to provide if we have a family and we have children and Mm -hmm. So, so there. It's not the first thought that comes to mind, though. Not necessarily, no, and and not, you know, just like physical attractiveness, it isn't necessarily the first thought. First thought that comes to mind with men as well. Again, there's that kindness, that understanding. Um, similarities tend to be very important too when when people are attracted to each other. When you say that that kindness and understanding, um, you know, we we've heard, and maybe it's maybe these are these are cliches, but that opposites attract. Uh, that. You know, there are women who like bad boys and, and things like that. I mean, are they cliches or, yeah, obviously everyone's different. Correct, right, right. O opposites do attract, but s people who are similar to one another tend to stay together longer. So, so th th that may, opposites attract maybe more for a short-term type of relationship because in the long term, it, it's some, sometimes those things that attracted you, those opposites are what, kind of tear you apart yeah, as well. Yeah, they get on your nerves after a while. Right. We have a, a listener who, or, or audience member, I should say, who has a question. Hi, Scott. Hi. Hi. Um, you mentioned that um, men are attracted to physical attributes, women are attracted to non-physical attributes. One of the things that attracts me to a woman is not whether she can procreate. Mm -hmm. It's the tools that she has to procreate with, if I'm trying to be. <laughs> we get your drift. <laughs> other attributes and uh, I don't know I would challenge you I mean I, I think you're basically right mm -hmm. and you know well, she's a doctor so she must know I'm not but I would say that since I started dyeing my hair gray mm -hmm. women don't approach me and I have resources mm -hmm. so I don't I don't think I have the resources they're looking for so you're you, since your your hair is you're, you're, as you're aging, you're talking As about. I'm aging, okay. yes. And that's a, probably a big point here, right? Because, I mean, one of the things I saw with your research mm -hmm. 
is that men tend to look for women who are younger. Mm -hmm. What and, about women? And women tend to look for men who are older. So um, on average, in the, yes, yes. <laughs> You're in, Charles. Celebrate that. <laughs> so um, on average, um, for the first marriage, the men tend to be two years older than the women, and women tend to be two years younger than the men. And then for the men, if they happen to get married again, on average, their second wife is five years younger than they are. And then if they get married a third time, on average, their third wife is seven to ten years younger um, than, than they are. Yeah. And so, it, and so it's, it works both ways. The men tend to be attracted to women who are younger, um, and women tend to be attracted to men who are older. All right, so in the few minutes we have left in the program, something that uh, you wrote about that I find very interesting uh, has to do with the number of men and women and where you find them. Uh, now, you know, we don't often talk about this because, I don't know, maybe it's frowned upon, but you write that if you are a man looking for a woman, you go where the women are, same way with the other way around. Correct. Tell me what you mean by that. So um, in situations where you have a lot more women than men, the women don't tend to be, to be treated as well, and there tends to be more short-term relationships. But in situations where there's a lot more men than women, we see more long-term relationships. And, and, and so where there's a lot more men than women, the women can be choosier, more selective. When there's a lot more women than men, then the men can be choosier. Um, I think I mentioned to you at colleges now, at 80% of the colleges in the United States, there are more women than men. And at half of those colleges, there are fewer than 80 men for every 100 women. And when the, the ratios are, are skewed that much, it really can affect the relationship. All right, so what does that mean? When that that okay. probably would surprise a lot of people. Right, that, right. Uh, the relate, that, you know, that ratio is so, is so different nowadays. Right. But so, what does that mean? So when you have so many more women at college than men, then what we see is a trend for more short-term relationships, that women may not be valued as much. Um, and so it can be difficult for a woman who goes to college to find a long-term relationship. Not all women, but certainly harder than it was in, say, the 80s. You know, and maybe there's nothing to do with one another, but, you know, obviously one of the big issues that college campuses face today is sexual assault. Mm -hmm. When you just said that a lot, a lot of short-term relationships and that women aren't valued as much, that's what it kind of says in my mind. Absolutely, yeah, and I do believe it. I'm not sure if there's any um, research out there, but I do believe that the increase in sexual assaults may be because we have so many more women than men on college campuses, and it really can affect the dating environment. Mm. Dr. Diane Brockman is a senior lecturer of psychology at Messiah College. Dr. Brockman, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I want to thank everyone who tuned in today for our Smart Talk road trip at the Hershey Gardens Conservatory, everyone who uh, came out and is here in person, all our guests for, for being with us today. Had a, a great time, so I encourage you to visit as well. Uh, by the way, on Friday, coming up on Friday, we have another very special Smart Talk in the atrium at WITF. Artist Philip Perlstein will be with us. So RSVP, you can uh, t c come in uh, for that as well. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional.